All right, biohackers, who doesn't love a yummy, creamy whey protein shake? Oh, it is such a treat. And I really love it as a meal replacement, post-workout recovery, maybe even a midday snack. So this is why I have to tell you about Puri Protein Powder. I absolutely love the bourbon vanilla flavor and the chocolate, but I think I got to go with the, the vanilla as my favorite. So it's smooth, it's delicious. And you know what else? It's pretty awesome that the flavors come from real natural ingredients like the bourbon vanilla seeds from Madagascar. And let's talk about quality because there's a lot of junk whey protein on the market that I would not recommend. So the Puree whey protein, it comes from pasture-raised cow's milk with no hormones, no GMOs, and no pesticides. This is because Puree's mission has always been to be the best at offering pure, clean, and superior products that, that support health and well-being. And what I think truly sets them apart is that they are fully transparent with their product testing. Every batch is third-party tested against more than 200 contaminants and certified clean by the Clean Label Projects. Not all brands can say this. Plus, each product contains a QR code so you can personally scan it and review the test results at home. I know you're excited to try it out. So what you're going to do is head on over to puri.com slash biohackerbabes. That's P-U-O-R-I.com slash biohackerbabes. And then make sure you use promo code biohackerbabes at checkout to save 20%. All right, let's get back to the show. We're digging deep and asking the questions we need to ask. Years of stress and not just emotional. I was depleting my body. I was malnourished. I'm working out like crazy. I'm eating all these healthy foods. How could I not be well? We have to get back to the basics. We can change the way our genes are expressed. Anyone that wants to improve their health or upgrade their health, they should be biohacking. My name is Renee. And I'm Lauren. We are the Biohacker Babes. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. The Biohacker Babes podcast aims to create insight into the body's natural healing abilities, strengthen your intuition, and empower you with techniques and modalities to optimize your health and wellness. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. I'm Renee and I'm here with my sister Lauren today for episode 56. And today we have a guest. We have Dr. Andrew Hill from Peak Brain Institute in California. And we're going to dive into everything about neurofeedback. So if you've been curious about what neurofeedback is, is it for you? Um, or maybe you have some brain issues, anxiety, ADD, anything more extensive that you've been wanting to kind of biohack or upgrade, uh, definitely stay tuned for the episode. So before I bring Dr. Hill on, let me read you his bio. Dr. Andrew Hill is a neuroscientist, entrepreneur, and biohacking advocate. He holds a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA and is best known for his mission to bring the brain hacking technology of neurofeedback into mainstream practice. 
To achieve this, Dr. Hill founded Peak Brain Institute in 2015, a community-oriented company that teaches brain training from a fitness perspective and uses EEG neurofeedback and QEEG brain mapping designed to help all people achieve their brain performance goals. So welcome, Dr. Hill, to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We're excited to have you joining us on this beautiful Monday morning. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Nice to be here. Yeah, thank you. So today we're going to get to hear more about your center in LA or multiple centers in California. Talk about neurofeedback. Um, like I was telling you before we record, hit record today, I think neurofeedback may be a new topic for some of our listeners. So we'll kind of get back to basics. What is neurofeedback? Who should be doing it? And then um, maybe we'll throw some fun questions at you and dive a little bit deeper. Sure. Anything you like. Yeah. Want me to launch into a little overview of what neurofeedback is? I think it's the best place to start. That would be perfect. Let's do it. So essentially, neurofeedback is often very mysterious. We think about it as something you can do to the brain vaguely if we're super aware of it. It's not that complicated. It just sort of gets into basic learning processes in the brain. Almost all learning in the brain is a form of associative learning. And there's different things in the brain that happen uh, many cells, and some of the cells will talk to each other with little synapses, little almost connections that spit little messengers between the gap. And the amount of synaptic weighting or how closely uh, communicating two neurons are is, is, is learning, essentially. So cells that fire together eventually wire together, become more likely to fire as a circuit. So the brain's always reinforcing the tightness or the weakness of connections between cells. It's nothing that dramatic. The trick in neurofeedback is you can measure what the brain is doing in real time on a bunch of things. And then whenever the brain happens to shift, because a lot of chaotic, you know, billions of things happening, when it happens to shift on its own in the right direction, you go, yeah, good job, brain. And it will do a little more of that because essentially to operationalize it, you might stick a wire on top of your head and measure some brain waves and some ear clips or something and watch an animation or listen to music. And whenever the brain happens to shift brainwaves in one direction, the music gets louder, the animation plays, your, your car drives faster, your Pac-Man eats more dots. And the next moment, your brainwaves move in the wrong, quote-unquote, direction, or at least the direction that's not what you're trying to exercise. And the Pac-Man slows down, the car stalls, the music goes away. And so the software will watch your brain. You know, Let's say you're trying to train, I'll, I'll get into what this means in a moment, but you often train a couple of different brainwaves to do different things. It's very common in neurofeedback to train down or to reduce theta brainwaves and to train up beta brainwaves. Theta is sort of a, an inactivated state in many modern humans. It's kind of a squirrel. You know, it's hard to pump the brakes when you have a lot of, <laughs> a lot of theta. Um, it's creative. It's receptive attention. It's ideas bubbling up. It's memory. It's access. But it's not very linear. And theta can get set kind of high in some people. When it's very high, there's a lot of disinhibition, and we get impulsivity or hyperactivity generally. It can show up as other things, but it's kind of like an air in the brake lines kind of phenomena when it hangs out at high levels and circuits in the brain. And beta is kind of the opposite. It's an active frequency. The tissue sitting there chewing on things, processing, firing rapidly. It's doing its circuit little job or its little cellular job in a metabolically active way. So if you stick a wire in the head, let's say, on the right-hand side, there's a circuit on the right-hand side involved with supervisory attention, knowing if you're paying attention. And if you measure theta and beta there moment to moment, they'll kind of fluctuate on their own. Whenever theta dips and beta climbs for half a second, yay, good job, brain. 
So the software is kind of stopping and starting, applauding the trends the brain starts to engage in. Because the trick here is that every few seconds we'll move the goalposts and applaud. So you set the, the measurement threshold next to where your brain is. When it dips a little bit, the theta goes down a little bit. Yeah, you know, beep, beep, beep or something. But then after a few minutes, we move the goalposts and make it harder. And then move the goalposts and make it harder. So it's adaptive conditioning or operant conditioning uh, is what this is. This is shaping. For those of you who are psychology people, this is not uh, Pavlov's dog. I promise you will not drool when you're done. I'm ring a bell. This is uh, Skinner's pigeons. We take behavior that already exists in the brain. In this case, behaviors, brain waves, blood flow. And you, you shape it. You reward subtle shifts in it over many, many days. And in neurofeedback, after doing 20, 30, 40 sessions, you've made many, many huge changes in brain activity that show up in performance and in experience. So in the case of that theta-beta ratio, if you will, training theta down and training beta up, you might sit there for half an hour and the software is going to beep at you and things will run whenever your brain happens to make a little more beta relative to its theta. And you may or may not feel anything. Often in neurofeedback, it's this involuntary exercise. It's like a mirror is being held up to your brain, but your mind is kind of like not exactly sure what the information means. The brain re realizes whenever it drops its theta, stuff happens. And it kind of likes stuff. So tomorrow, your brain starts reaching for that same state. And you have little blips of like, oh, I feel focused. Because training theta down and training beta up over 30, 40, 50 sessions generally eliminates ADHD, for instance. Um, in 40, 50 sessions of neurofeedback, you make three to four standard deviations on a bell curve in the population. People go from impaired to above average with that kind of you know, three to four months training, uh, basically. It's a pretty big shift for those executive resources. But I want to sort of point out that ADHD, when I'm describing this phenomenon, is not an illness per se. It's a resource. It's kind of like having a muscle you know, or a configuration of your body you don't necessarily want. Some of those things can be problematic. You know, but they're also contextualized. If you're five feet tall, it's a problem. If you're trying to be in the NBA, it's not a problem. If you're trying to be a jockey, you know, so it depends on what, what we're talking about in terms of looking at this stuff. You can always, you know, design, if you will, different resources you want to go after. And that's getting into this idea that neurofeedback is basically personal training for brain resources. And let me back up a touch. Please, you know, interrupt me and have me uh, unpack stuff if you want. But, <laughs> I just, uh, I, I want to, Jump in real quick. I love yeah. what you just said. It's it, it is it's like exercise for your brain. I think people have heard like, oh, I should do Sudoku puzzles or whatever, you know, like to exercise my brain. But Sudoku works a yeah. little bit, but it's not a very large impact in the brain across life. Um, yeah, I, I would think so. If you're doing things that are cognitive, effortful, voluntary things to improve your brain. Meditation is the number one. Mm -hmm. you meditate for 15, 20 minutes a day. And lifelong, after 15, 20 years, you're spared the cortical thinning that occurs with aging. Uh, it's dramatic. So you don't have to meditate much. But yeah, for cognitive exercise, you should do stuff. Sudoku is okay. Meditation is much better hmm. in terms of uh, building brain tissue and sparing you from the ravages, if you will, of aging. But meditation is pretty daunting for a lot of people. And it is work because it takes some skill yeah. and technique. So that's is that the difference between voluntary and involuntary? The neurofeedback, you're just kind of letting it happen. You're seeking the reward, but it's not as active. Yeah, the, I mean, neurofeedback is almost entirely involuntary. The, the, the brain does it, not the mind. Meditation or mindfulness is only voluntary. In fact, uh, let me paraphrase Jack Cornfield. Uh, mindfulness is paying attention in a specific way on purpose to the present moment, replacing judgment with curiosity, evaluate, you know, interest versus evaluation. Ooh, what, what's happening in my mind right now? Not like, I can't meditate, oh my God, you know? 
So <laughs> meditation, just to break it down a little more succinctly, is anchoring your attention in a particular way. So there's three, just getting a little aside from your feedback for a second, but it's okay. This yeah. is relevant, you know, body and mind. So there's at least three major classes of, you know, historical meditation, at least the way I break it down. One is uh, present time awareness. Uh, we call it insight tradition in the West or Vipassana. It's watching things flow by, not being sort of flapped by them, you know, becoming the, you, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember Weeble Wobbles in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Weeble Wobbles, they don't fall down. Our, our, our emotions or our tension, our fatigue, you should have a writing motion like a Weeble Wobble or a sailboat. When the wind stops, the sailboat writes itself because it has right. this deep center that's solid. And that's a meditation produces over time, but doesn't produce calmness while doing it. You don't be strong in the gym. You get strong later. You don't lift weights and struggle to be strong in the gym. You're strong later. You don't sit there on the cushion and be peaceful and be calm inside and be meditative necessarily, even though you're meditating. So the act of anchoring the attention, the focus of the executive, what you're pointing your, your, your mind at is the meditation process. And if you do it, you can, again, focus on present time awareness, like things flowing by, vipassana, or your breath, you know, rising and falling. Something cyclic is usually quite nice. Or you can do um, the, the, the later, if you will, generation that became the more dominant historical form meditation is called samatha or um, concentration practices. So the Mahayana Buddhism, so Chinese Buddhism, became this massive uh, thing many, many years ago and took over and kind of became a dominant flavor in the, in the East of uh, meditation. It's, it's a concentration practice. I call that single point awareness. So Vipassana is present time awareness. Samatha is single point awareness. You often look at like just... You, you tend just to the sensation of air crossing your lip, and that's it. Or a single point on the wall, or a single mm-hmm. sound. So TM, Transcendental Meditation, isn't a mantra-driven meditation, but it's an absorption practice on a concentration, a mantra, a color, a sound. So it fits into the category of concentration practices in my mind. So again, single point awareness, concentration practices, present time awareness, insight practices, like watching things flow by, or, med- or MBSR, like, ooh, the flavor of the grape in my mouth for 40 minutes, you know? It's a very deep attention. Um, and then you have metta, loving kindness, heart tone awareness, feeling tone awareness. In, in classic Buddhism, there's not really a, a separation between heart and mind. The awareness of self is sort of a heart-mind awareness. And we call this metta or loving kindness in the West, but it's a, it's a way to anchor your sense of compassion, gratitude, empathy, and care to essentially dissolve the callous you build up every day by fighting against the world. So those three forms of meditation are not easy to do. But if you sit and anchor your attention on something, and after five seconds, you discover that, guess what? You have a brain, so it's thinking, wishing, feeling, fantasizing, I'm hungry, she's cute, oh my God, what's happening over there? <laughs> That's what your brain does, because you have one. That's a good thing. But every time you've drifted away from the anchor, whatever you've chosen for that session, oh, oh now right now, and back to the anchor. You've just done a rep of meditation. Great. And if you're easily distracted and notice yourself drifting from the anchor frequently, you have lots of opportunity to meditate. It's not a problem. It's, you know, it won't necessarily feel calming in that moment. But if you do it over many, many days, a bunch of things will happen. You will develop space in the moment between your thoughts. Um, The the focus of attention, the prefrontal cortex moves. Uh, When you start meditating, it's it's kind of in the top middle, interior singular, very self-centered, default mode network. You're switching what to focus on. It's very, very I, capital I, self-driven. After years of meditation, the focus shifts to the underside of the frontal lobe, and it's a selfless awareness of, of your mind. The I, the, the ego, is actually not really terribly involved after many, many years of meditation. 
So you have that capacity. Um, meditation is not easy to do. It's also not that hard to do. You know, it's not, it's not easy for anybody. I'm sure Dalai Lama sits and has a hard time on his cushion every third or fourth day. You know, <laughs> sure. he can't calm his mind. You know, yeah. I mean, and it's not to say you have to be that kind of meditator. Maybe meditation for you is a contemplative practice of prayer or hiking through the Appalachian Trail, you know, that's near behind your house for an, for an hour every other day or something. It's anchored attention in a specific way, trying to remain anchored. That's all meditation is. And human brains are okay at doing that as a skill, but not okay at doing it as a reactive moment to all the things we have to deal with. And so it's kind of like you're flossing your teeth, the mental floss, by producing the strength to not be thrown off moment to moment to moment all day long. That's what meditation builds. And the reason we like get physically active is so that when we're tired from sitting at our desk, our lower back doesn't go out. You know, meditation can inoculate you and make you resilient against the stressors and drag uh, throughout life, essentially. So I think it's a good thing to do adjunctively. I view neurofeedback and meditation kind of hand in glove in some ways, where meditation is like the voluntary, especially with a teacher, the, the voluntary you know, coach in the field helping you lift your elbow a bit more or correct your form. Some voluntary exploration you have to do in meditation. But neurofeedback's like the person in the gym just making you bang that extra rep out. You're just building resource. It's not really a, a how to use the resource, uh, a metaphor there. So I, I like people to do both when they're biohacking. I think that my, my rules, my general rules for biohacking are start with the things you're doing every day and hack your sleep, your stress, your mood, and your attention. And then your food. And then start layering things on that aren't things you do every day, depending what you need, you know, to, to make transitions certain directions. But we're all theoretically eating, or you know, most days we're eating, sleeping, stressing, and attending. So I feel that those are things that we are sort of obligated. We have an opportunity to, to, to get those really short up and manage them. And then just like you know, the athlete who falls out of a building or gets caught in a car crash walks away. You know, because their bodies are so resilient and strong, and the and the little old lady who's got osteoporosis doesn't because her bone, because she's just so fragile, her tissues fragile. I mean, you can you can choose which type of brain you have, just like you should choose what kind of body you have. So, you know, uh, biohackers are concerned about things like C-reactive protein, homocysteine, and VDL. You know, and then if you're not quite in the biohacker, the true elite camp, you maybe care about your abs or something as a sign of health. You know, instead of your, you know. Uh, uh, I don't know, methylation status or something. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it gets more subtle than that. The, the brain is not that mysterious in these gross resources of attention, stress, sleep, and mood, speed of processing, brain fog, trauma, migraines, and seizure. While these are all concerning things and get in the way of performance and, and they add suffering, they're not all that poorly understood. And they're easy in some ways to address, just like it's easy to address in low back pain or to get your abs to show or to get a nice, you know, pack or something. You can do it. You know, every third person that walks into Equinox wants to lose 15 pounds and show their abs. And every third person, you know, gets like, okay, great. It's a different path for most of those people, one to the next. Some people need more, you know, emphasis on deep sleep. Some need to change their diet. Some it's about physical exercise. Some it's, you know, all those things are, you know, horrible. But the path is different, but the goals are not that unusual. And so, when people come into my office, want to work on stress, sleep, mood, attention, seizure, trauma, migraine, autism, you know, a handful of other things. It's like, okay, great. Let's try to find that stuff in your brain mapping. And here's to close the circle. Uh, we start the process of neurofeedback with something called a brain map or a quantitative EEG. Um, you've had other folks on your uh, show that I've brain mapped, but here's a brain mapping cap. 
Um, so you put this on, on someone's head and you squirt it full of gel. And that's it. They sit there for about 10 minutes. Uh, you take eyes closed recording and an eyes open recording and compare it to a database of other people and see how weird you are. Now, <laughs> we're looking for how unusual you are, not what's right or wrong. It's, it's different framing. It's not a medical or diagno diagnostic psychological perspective. It's like, oh, look, your theta is high relative to your beta. Sometimes that means impulsivity, but not always. You know, about nine times out of 10 it does. So if you came in with some complaints or goals around impulsivity, and we saw that, well, okay, great. We found the weak muscle you want to work on. This is wonderful. Now let's address it. Or, you know, sometimes people come in with a bunch of very confusing things, anxiety, trauma, sleep, stress, and you look at the brain and you come up with a set of differences from typical. So the mapping might give me, I don't know, um, I mentioned the anterior cingulate earlier. When you meditate, this, this, you shift this focus from the self, the high focus. The anterior cingulate is really the selector of what you should be focusing on. So we all have one, and it's part of the default mode network, self-referential attention. And the anterior cingulate can get a little pinched or hot or tight in some of us, just like our lower back can, just for, for engineering reasons. When you're cingulate in the front, the anterior cingulate's hot or, or a little irritable or easily activated, we'll have songs play in our head all the time or bite our nails, or you might have OCD, uh, or maybe you're a CEO. I don't know. Like, I can't tell if it's in the way or not, the OCD versus CEO. It's the hyper-focus ability tends to be unusual. And yeah, it often gets in the way when I see this thing, it's often a little bit of obsession or perseveration. You can't select what you're focusing on. But for some people, that's, is the oven on? Is the oven on? Is the oven on? Is the oven on? Or like, for someone, it's like, oh my God, I love little Jimmy. He's so cute. And they get stuck in an obsessive, you know, that teenage love. Like, I can't stop thinking about Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy on my notebook. That's the anterior cingulate, you know? So we use it to positively value things as much as we do to get, get stuck. So if I saw a cingulate on you that was super active, I'd go, oh, your cingulate looks kind of active compared to average. Um, you're probably kind of high powered. Does this get stuck? Do you perseverate? Or is this a, a skill, you know? Are you Mr. Monk or Steve Jobs? Which, which you know, which of these is it? And uh, if it's good for you, great. Now you, you understand yourself a little more. But if you're like, oh, I'm kind of obsessive and like there's intrusive thoughts and I can't stop biting my nails and like, you know, I'm kind of worried. Well, great. This is easy to train down. And that would measure that cingulate, the extra beta. And whenever the beta dipped and the alpha climbed, it would applaud your brain. And then after a handful of sessions, you'd unclench the cingulate. You wouldn't lose the ability to hyper-focus at will, but you would lose the need to if you don't want to. So it's like unclenching a really strong like low back muscle that spasms up to protect you. It's not you know, a, a weak muscle. It's not well-regulated. And you don't want to like, dissolve that muscle or tranquilize it or freeze it. You want to get the nice range of motion. And for these natural circuits, the same thing. Um, and the posterior cingulate does very similar things, but instead of selecting what to focus on, it does a threat check or, or a reorientation check. So if you're driving your car and you're looking down at the floor, and you wouldn't do this, but if you did, that sense of watch the road or someone says, hey, heads up, and you look up and like don't get hit in the head with a baseball, that's the posterior cingulate deciding that you should reorient your attention successfully. We all need one. The world's unpredictable. If you learn the world is especially unpredictable or especially threatening, the brain gets stuck in an evaluation mode. The posterior cingulate shows tons of beta. And that will show up. I call that rumination. It's a threat sensitivity and evaluation gets stuck on. And in the brain mapping literature, you see a lot of posterior cingulate activation and PTSD. 
the threat sensitization and trauma. So if I found your singlets were hot, I wouldn't assume you had OCD or PTSD, but I would assume there might be a question to ask about do you perseverate or do you ruminate in a way that's uncomfortable? And if you do, you have agency to not change it. So we've been able to sidestep diagnoses, show you the actual physiology instead of the label that a psychologist works off of, and give you control over it. And then after a handful of sessions exercising it, you feel different from stuff you did. So for these anxiety things, it not only gives you control over it within a few weeks, but it gives you agency of the whole process. And when there's you know, obsession or perseveration or trauma, or here's an example, when the eyes are closed, the visual system in the back of the head is usually quiescent. It goes into alpha waves, big, slow, resting alpha waves. But if I measured your brain and it was staying lit up in beta, that's the visual system preparing to process just in case. And that's a hypervigilance marker. So, you know, if you're somebody who is a combat vet in active duty, that might not be a big deal necessarily. Maybe just kind of extra on or a, these days a hospital worker. You know, I, I've worked in hospitals. They can be like war zones in terms of how critical the, the, the influx of information is um, and how stressful and how much, you know, death is, is, is uh, life and death decisions are happening right around you. So these people become hypervigilant as a skill set. But if you came in and I found this and you were anxious and you couldn't disengage from the environment, well, now you have a sense of how to exercise this part of your brain. So you can almost cosmetically go through and design your attention, your stress. You can suppress seizures by at least half usually. You can knock migraines back pretty significantly. Just like you might want to go after your you know, physical stuff you understand, the stuff that's above the neck is actually pretty tractable uh, through, this, through this, yeah. this sort of iterative process. So, so this is very hands-on because that seems very subjective. Like if you're going to ask someone, do you experience this? Does it bother you? Someone could say like, I have anxiety, but like, I need that anxiety. People probably yeah. really attach themselves to it. So then is that your job to kind of weed that out and, and decipher whether or not that needs to be funneled into a certain protocol? Like how much does that change the protocol based yeah. on the subjective response? A lot, actually. Um, I'll go through the brain maps and find things that are unusual, but like, I mean, you guys are related, so your brains are somewhat similar. You kind of have the same brain map, actually, probably, or very similar. Hmm. Usually siblings are often very similar. Not always, but, but usually. But about, um, about a third of your brain is genetic, experience lifelong, but you guys also shared the environment growing up and lots of other things. So it tends to, tend to converge when you share that much stuff, environment and genetics. I would go through the things that are unusual and say, you know, here's an unusual thing. Is, you know, here's what it might mean. Is it valid and do you care? Is it important to you? And, and, if, and if it's a yes on all those things, then great. Now it's in the list of things to work on. And now we can try and see what happens when we exercise this resource or go after this feature. Because we don't necessarily know what will happen as we start to exercise. It's kind of like, personal training. Well, how'd you feel tomorrow? I can't lift my arms. Ooh, maybe too much weight on the machine. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like, uh, I'm trying to train somebody I don't, in, in a body gym sense and don't know how tall they are. And they tell me the next day that like, their upper shoulder was sore. I'm like, Oh, maybe they're taller than I thought they were and have to change the height of the machine or something. Cause we can't see often what's in, we really can't see what's in the brain. And the brain mapping is a, a two dimensional sort of flat from the outside set of measurements, averages from one person. But then we have to unmix that scalp data and guess about the circuits deep in the brain that might be producing the summed average 10,000 foot view pictures. Now, brain mapping is nice in that the pictures don't change on their own. So I looked at your averages of theta, beta, et cetera, now and in a year, they would be roughly the same unless you did stuff to your brain. 
So you don't have to repeat the brain mapping very often. often. Yeah. Okay. If you're training aggressively, if you're near my office, I'll do a map every 20 sessions. And we see almost a standard deviation of change in things like attention and stress and sleep. Like the brain changes a lot in the data and people feel it a lot in that 20 session chunk. But if you're training from home and you don't have a brain mapping system, we, we, we send you one at the beginning to gather the first assessments. Um, but we can go 40, 50, 60 sessions often, which is kind of a full course of training without a repeat map as long as we're on track. And about 70% of people's brains do what we expect. So for most people, yeah, we map at the beginning, and then the process of training is much more simple. So I showed you the mapping cap, which is kind of a bit of uh, technology. It's not that sort of confusing or, or scary tech. It just plugs into one of these things. This is actually a full-head EEG amplifier. It's a little tiny Bluetooth one. And we send you this, and you hook it to yourself, and put the cap on, and squirt gel through all the holes. And one of the staff is like watching and adjusting and saying, oh, more gel in that hole. No, no, other side. You know, and, and <laughs> helping you learn to get all the signals. And then you sit still, and they say, Relax your jaw. Relax your jaw. Okay, there you go. You know, and, and get the recording in for the assessment. You send this back. This is about a $5,000 device. You can buy them, but we don't need you to. Um, and then we send you one of these, which is much less expensive. This is a, a, these are individual EEG holes. So you just put three wires on, two ear clips. You can probably find your ears. And then we teach you to find one of a handful of locations you just want to start with in the head. And most of your training is one location. Stick a wire there, put some ear clips on, plug it into the little amplifier. Um, it's going into your computer. And then if you're concerned about like electric placement or something, uh, all of our home clients have a private support channel. Each one of them has a team on a private channel. So you can hop on your Slack channel and take a photograph of your head and say, is that right? And we can go, yeah, that's pretty good. Or I'm more to the left. Or help you oh, troubleshoot cool. or something. So we have live support oh. for four months for training, for clients who are training from home. And in four months, you can do almost a full course of training if you're classic, like it's tension, stress, sleep, you're kind of done three, four, five months in. Hey, biohackers, Renee here. I just wanted to interrupt today's show to tell you about a product Lauren and I have been using to boost brain function and energy. If you follow us on social media, I'm sure you've seen the blue tongue pictures. That is part of the blue tongue magic, and it's just always super fun to catch it on camera when we can. So this product by Troscriptions is called Blue Canatine. It includes four powerful ingredients, methylene blue, which is where the blue comes from, caffeine, nicotine, and hemp oil crystals. So this combination works synergistically to boost mitochondrial function, which then leads to a boost in energy, concentration, mental clarity, and even some motivation for the day. So check out the transcriptions website. We'll link to that in today's show notes. So if you want to learn more about this amazing product, you can definitely go there. You can also check them out on Instagram. They have a super fun page. You can see how other biohackers are using it. And of course, the famous blue tongue photos. And don't forget to use code biohackerbabes at checkout if you want to try the product. That discount code will give you 10% off your order. Awesome. We hope you enjoy. Other things like brain injuries, autism, seizures, migraines, uh, you want to train for longer, six months to a year probably. And uh, it doesn't take six months to figure out what's working for you. It takes a few weeks. So we set clients up long-term and they keep going and building brain resources and keep chipping away at stuff and things like that. And then the way peak brain works is if you're home training client, I send you this back for rental for a weekend or something for more assessments or, or sell you one. You can also come into a peak brain office for no charge ever for a brain map. The way we work is we charge the first time 
and we never charge for a repeat brain map. I mean, in the U.S., the mapping fees range about, about a grand. Is that about average? We charge $500 list for our first brain map, which includes attention testing. Um, for your listeners, it's actually going to be half price at $249. Uh, we never charge for repeats. So if you come into the office, you can always come back in for another brain map and learn more about yourself without paying for more assessment. So we, we think it's really not our data. It's not our responsibility to use it. It's sort of like our responsibility to educate you about it so you can use it. And so providing a place for such a lab for people to come in and remap without ongoing charge is pretty nice for some of them. And you know, a lot of our biohackers will do things like Map the brain on sleep depth, well-rested, on modafinil, on cannabis, on B vitamins, on NAD, after they're hyperbaric, before, after their sauna. And you can see acute wow. shifts in a handful of things. And so yeah, I want to do that. Lean on your brain. <laughs> well, to do a lot of interventions, you want to have your own QEEG amplifier. But I have clients that are sending data to me every couple of days with different acute state shifts. And as you do that, you learn more about your brain, which is kind of fun. But you also learn like, a lot of clients who have ADHD, for instance, will map their brains on their stimulants, which is a dirty read, as well as off the stimulants, which is, I understand, their brain. And we also measure attention tests and discover about half the time that with the stimulant on board, some of the attention aspects improve, but some actually get impaired. People get faster, uh, more focused, but maybe more impulsive or something, or, you know, uh, uh, not as accurate, but but more rapid or something. So it's a mix of performance. And if you have your favorite nootropics or your favorite coffee or your favorite cannabis blend or whatever it is, you can actually just look at your brain under that altered state and determine what the heck's going on. Is your alpha faster or slower for speed of processing? Is your measured impulsivity on an attention test better or worse? So my sort of, my sort of mission here is to give people the same degree of agency and understanding this stuff is you might have working with a trainer in Equinox or, you know, a high level physical therapist or something. It's not perfectly well understood, the body stuff, but it, you can operationalize it and make change. And same thing with the brain. We don't really understand what's going on, but we know how to lean on levers and shift resources and reliably get people from point A to point B. So I think everyone should be deciding for themselves what to go after in those maps, what's important. And then when you remap and you feel how you feel, you start making more and more meaning and, and, and get more and more agency as you go, ultimately. I have a few questions about the mapping. Yeah. One, what does an ideal map look like? And then the second question is, does it take a full course, like you said, at least 40 sessions to see a difference on the mapping? Or you're going to feel different before you see that change on the map. Is that correct? Yeah. You and then does that differ it. between like someone that's just coming in for, I don't want to downplay anxiety, but that compared no. to like a TBI? Good question. A couple questions there. Um, mm -hmm. Most people, 70, 80%, feel it between three to five sessions in. It takes a few sessions to start kicking in. The brain's like, why is it beeping at me? Oh, wait a minute. It's changing. My theta changes. But it takes <laughs> I did it. Minutes. Yeah. And then you often don't feel the session until you've done it for a week, week and a half, three to five sessions. And then you'll feel a little bit like boosted or a little calm or a little tired in the session. Like that you feel like a weird little like, whoa, I'm kind of focused now. Wow, I'm kind of tired right now for a second because the, the resources are getting pushed around your brain briefly. But then you don't, that wears off. You don't feel too much. If you're sensitive and some people, 10% people are, 10% aren't, about two hours later, you sort of feel the slight ask that's being, uh, that's going to show up. It shows up for about 36 hours but it shows up for like two to 12 hours, like a little surge and kind of goes away. 
many people can feel that. And generally what happens is after the first couple of weeks of training, you'll get shifts in the next 24 hours on your sleep, stress, and attention. So you come back in and say, oh, my sleep onset improved or got worse. Or I felt focused or I felt spacey. I felt calm or kind of tired. And based on what you experience, we'll tweak the protocol and then iterate. Now, some people feel it really rapidly. Um, TBI clients are usually in that camp. Um, essentially, brain fog is a kind of non-specific final common way that many human brains get out of shape. And if you have a lot of like closed head injury or mild TBIs or concussions, you don't have anything specific going on, but you have slowed brain waves. Your brain isn't getting to deep sleep anymore. And there's a few other like, like global features. And your brain looks that way after TBI. It also looks that way after chemotherapy or mold exposure or chronic restless leg or apnea causing sleep issues. So this like fog state that creeps in as a really poor performance uh, mentally and cognitively, which I mean learning, not ideal. So if I saw this fog state, I would expect, I wouldn't know what it meant. I wouldn't know if it was an injury or not, unless you told me. But I would know that the fog lifting at all is going to feel amazing. It's kind of like um, a Disney movie. You know, the clouds break and the sunbeam hits you and birds in your shoulders, like, you know? But it doesn't last. In TBI and fog, it's like, wow. And then it kind of wears off. It's like two steps forward, one step back. You have to keep training to keep iterating, getting that effect to keep moving. And it often takes four to six months to get to a permanent place for TBI. And then you, you often keep going six months to a year to get where you want to be. Same thing for autism. Doesn't like doesn't change all at once. Or schizophrenia. It changes, but you're working against an active disease process. You stop training, schizophrenia comes back. Hmm. But hmm. ADHD, anxiety, et cetera, all the core things that I, that may be diagnostic things, but they're all just normal human things, you know, those things get re-regulated. And after they're changed enough, since you're doing that stuff with your brain every day, the practice is now being done and the resource is stable in its new mode. And so your attention, your stress, your sleep, et cetera, stay generally sorted out after three or four months for those things. So it depends on the person in terms of feeling stuff and what you're noticing, but Generally, a couple of weeks in, people are like get people are getting shifts in subjective experience of sleep, stress, attention, and then uh, we have a survey system. So we're actually having you fill out, oh, how was your sleep this morning after your training, and what was your day like? And as those things aggregate back into your log, we're seeing that oh look, whenever you train the left side of your head for focus, your sleep got deeper. Great. Oh, yeah. uh, we trained the, the the cingulates to make you feel calm. You felt super calm, but your sleep onset delayed. Huh. And we can sort of see that show up after several weeks and go, okay, let's try this. And all right, dial it in. And now you're calm and you can fall asleep and you're focused or something. And we learn the, you know, we watch the little blip after every session. So you can learn, you can tell us what's actually happening subjectively. I try to believe what you tell me instead of what I think, ideally, you know, because brains are so strange. And even the two sisters who have probably very similar brains, the exact same neurofeedback might land a little differently. And one of you might get a different effect. You know, one of you might feel, oh, I feel focused. One of you might be like, I'm kind of an edge. Because one of you might be like a quarter hertz slower than the other one or something, just naturally. And overshoot for one of you and land perfectly for the other one of you. And you're like, this is great. Really? I don't like this. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. and then it wears off. And you come back in and say, oh, I'm kind of an edge. Okay, interesting. How's your sleep? Okay, let's try this. How'd you like that? Ooh, I like that better, ideally. And then it's very iterative. Like, a, again, like a personal trainer would, would work with you. So our yeah, I love the micro adjustments. Yeah, it doesn't matter so much where the work's done. You can, you can throw your kettlebell up in your living room as well as in Equinox. 
But if your kettlebell coach is making sure you got your form right the first few times, you know, and making sure that you're actually doing supersets and whatever else, then you end up with your progression you want. And it's pretty much the darn same process of the individual swinging the bell in the living room and in the gym. Within reason, it's the, the, the things that fall, fall over in the home are like the structure of your time, the getting it in, the making sure that, you know, you're actually doing it three or four times a week. That's the hard thing for home trainers. And because you're working on the brain and because I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, I also don't work on acute psychiatric things in the home. Like I, I you know, I, I can suggest that neurofeedback is a good intervention if you're depressed, but you should see a psychologist or psychiatrist who works with neurofeedback. Because just like being sore after the gym, you can have resources that kind of fluctuate each time you push on them. And if you're, you know, suicidal or have a very bleak mood or something, you can throw it off briefly. And you should have a support system to catch you psychologically, as well as who can hear what happened and iterate your neurofeedback. So ideally, you want a person who's both. And the good news is in the U.S., there's roughly 5,000 practitioners that do neurofeedback. Not a lot. Probably 5,000 chiropractors in California alone or L.A. alone. But... (laughs) Um, you know, 5,000 practitioners US wide, and almost all of them are a therapist model, the vast majority. My company, Peak Brain, is among the only sort of like gym model or peak performance model. And don't get me wrong, we work with all the same stuff, you know, anxiety, trauma, seizure, migraine, autism, everything. Uh, and most of my experience before my own companies is in working with very, very impaired brains, especially autism. But, you know, the, the point is there's agency and access to do neurofeedback for you no matter what is going on in your brain. But you may want to work with somebody who has the psychological piece um, sorted for you as well. This is not necessarily a replacement. I do think that, you know, for some things it is. You're never going to therapy your way out of ADHD or a seizure, you know. And some other things, the brain's in the way. It may be hard to do therapy. you got trauma. You know, I work with a lot of therapists who refer to me, and many of them, when their colleagues find out that they're sending their clients to do neurofeedback, are like, oh, aren't you worried they're going to take clients away? And their response is always something like, no, 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 no. The neurofeedback gets the brain out of the way so I can do my therapy with a person. So I work with a lot of like cool. internal family systems people and trauma therapists and things. And you can downregulate that like acute threat response a little bit and get people control over their you know, panic attack or their intrusive thoughts or something, then you can do the work in the therapeutic environment in a much you know, more open and flexible way. Plus, we boost plasticity in the brain during neurofeedback. So you add other things, therapy, language learning, uh, physical workouts. You get accelerated change in everything. Even body stuff changes faster when you do neurofeedback because of the plasticity bath you're sort of creating. So, hmm. you know. Wow. So, and I know you do a lot of work with addiction, all different types of addiction. I have, yeah. I'm curious because we talk a lot about intuitive eating and food addiction. Mm. Do you, I guess a couple questions. So addiction, is it kind of all the same, whether they're addicted to alcohol or drugs or food or yeah? does the brain kind of look the same? Addiction is learning. That's all it is. Um, Specifically in a psychological context, you would define addiction as having two criteria, dependence and tolerance. Um, socially, addiction tends to get in the way of lifestyle and, and habit and productivity and other things. So we, we often define things as psychiatric or psychological to the degree to which they impair, you know, natural life, if you will, or happiness or anything else. And addiction is not category. It's, a, it's an illness only because it gets in the way of things. But it's not special in any way. It's just learning. It really is. And you can be addicted to food and sex and television and gambling, just like you can be addicted to, like, you know, drugs and abuse. 
the learning process is very, very much the same. Uh, hmm. Some drugs and abuse have a second hit because they're dopaminergic themselves. And so they cause a learning signal all on their own, as well as being rewarding subjectively. So they're kind of doubly addicting, like heroin and cocaine and things. They, they're a little too direct in terms of the subjective reward and poking on the reward system at the chemical level. And so you get rapidly habituated. Nicotine's the same way. They're rapidly addicted to nicotine. In fact, I think the physiological dependence for nicotine might be stronger than anything else that we've ever exposed our human brains to. So I think it's harder yeah. to, to reset dependence on nicotine than heroin, for instance. Um, now, I've never heard that. No, no, I, I have a big cup of coffee here. It's my fourth or fifth, you know, today. And I've been up since about for like six hours. So, you know, it's not oh all in the past few minutes. But um, I'm addicted to coffee a little bit. So what? I mean, the upper limit yeah. for coffee impairing health based on some studies out of Finland and Russia and places with these huge amounts of coffee, it's like 26 cups a day or something ridiculous before the health That's benefits. insane. And, and it's an asymptote. They don't, they don't become uh, harmful. It just stops becoming more beneficial. In the absence of cardiac and gut issues, of course. You know, some people have right. cardiac stuff that's really sensitized or acid really sensitized by caffeine or yeah. coffee. But as long as you put stuff in your coffee, you can tolerate the caffeine, you know, the, the costs are very, very low for having a coffee addiction in the modern world. You know, but having a video game addiction or a sex addiction or a cocaine addiction, big problem. So... The brain gets very changed by some substances in a super obvious way. And there's a couple of substances that are my favorite to work on because of how much work we can do so rapidly. Uh, one, alcohol. We take 25, 30-year-old, you know, 30-year drinkers who are burnt out, shaky, nervous, drinking you know, multiple bottles of wine a day, can't calm down, can't go to sleep without a drink. And they come to my office two months after a detox, you know, heavily medicated, white knuckling their, their experience, still can't fall asleep. And three, four weeks in, they can turn their mind off and fall asleep whenever they want to, voluntarily. Just uh, downshift that, that, that. It's that amazing. Edge. Cannabis is another big one. A lot of chronic cannabis users. I don't think cannabis is especially addicting at all. I don't think it's physiologically addicting. It does have tolerance, but no dependence. Hmm. So coffee is profoundly more addictive than cannabis, profoundly for instance, but the cost of cannabis might be higher because it's a bit amotivational. Or for some people, you know, it can be amotivational. You build ADHD, get some bipolar, don't, don't want to do cannabis. You know, it's going to really cause problems. And ADHD, it's amotivational and bipolar, it's going to increase the risk of psychosis, you know? So you don't want to like push your brain with stuff that's bad for you necessarily, but we all have had a drink or two. Many of us as adults have had a drink or two. And those are really bad for you. You know, humans have been altering our brains since before you were human. Really, I mean, birds look for fermented berries and get drunk and things. I mean, you know, uh, cows, oh, those birds. <laughs> cows eat St. John's wort and dance around the field all happy. I mean, you know, we're, right, we're yeah, this is not new. Before we were human, we alter our minds. It's not a big deal, but does it get in the way? Mm-hmm. And in alcohol, since it's so dependency driven, it can really get in the way. And cannabis can because people become chronic stoners. You know, it's a lifestyle thing, spending lots of money, sitting on a couch, eating junk, you know, because it's, it's a reward thing as well. I don't think it's a big deal per se, but I think people aren't reaching their, their potential. So in neurofeedback, you reverse the alcohol overactivation, but for cannabis and for stimulants like Adderall and Ritalin, which are somewhat abused, after five, six, seven weeks of neurofeedback, your tolerance to cannabis or to Adderall is gone. And that's a good thing because moderation requires huh. low tolerance. 
Mm-hmm. And so if you get in trouble with a substance, the first thing you want to do is get your tolerance under control because then you have a moderation choice. Without tolerance, you have no choice. You have to abstain. So for alcohol, the classic way to regain tolerance is do a month off. Reset your tolerance. Um, cannabis, right. it's a lifestyle drug. People use it for self-medication. and a very long half-life. It's hard. So you do a few weeks of training of neurofeedback, and you can use a profoundly small amount of cannabis for the exact same effects you used to get. You cool. can resets all that hmm. tolerance you've built up since your high school, you know, weed discovery, uh, whatever it was, you yeah. know? So I'm curious is, to know what you see on, on the mapping. I'm, I'm sure you've had people come in with like the dirty version with, with cannabis sure. or with alcohol and then yeah. without. So what a little different person to person. I've done a bunch of maps on biohackers and four of several different people in four states, clean caffeine, cannabis, and CBD. THC and CBD is separate. Um, generally, uh, cannabis impairs your performance, makes you look calm, but stupid, makes you look kind of ADHD. It slows your brain down and adds impulsivity. ADHD is not usually slow. So it's kind of like a sleepiness with an ADHD-ness in the, in the, in the, in the stoned brain. CBD, depending on the person, can look pretty typical, can look really asleep, or can look really calm. Some people, it's like, wow, look at that. All the anxiety markers went away. Some people, it's like, wow, you're not actually able to think because you're actually tranquilized by this now. Um, and then generally, uh, caffeine looks the cleanest of any of those things, just suppresses all the slow brain waves. It suppresses all the stuff that cannabis and, and CBD bring up, essentially. So, hmm. Yeah. Um, Cause I, I've noticed with THC, I get horrific anxiety. Yeah. No matter like the ratio of CBD to THC, I just, I can't it's handle probably, it. Probably very fast brain. Your alpha is probably very, very rapid anyways. So once it gets mm. disinhibited, it feels like you're, it's kind of like you're running downhill and you have to keep going. Yeah. You know, once you start, ah, I'm going to keep yeah. running, you know, like your mind's like, ah, and like running downhill now. But keep those feet going or you're going to fall over yeah. and crash, you know? It's an awful feeling. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's, it's a speed of processing thing. It usually means you have a very fast brain. It's not ideal for you to use cannabis, obviously, you know? Yeah. No need for it. You probably really enjoy slowing the alpha down, like adding some L-theanine to your coffee would actually probably feel pretty good because that's a slower alpha. It actually take your fast variant and smooth it out as opposed to taking a fast variant and ramping it up. Um, so mm. some CBD with your coffee would actually probably give you a little Zen state if you haven't. Yeah. Done. Sorry, sorry, not CBD. Uh, um, uh, L-theanine. Yeah. yeah, that makes uh, sense. GABAergic effect, essentially. I noticed you have that in your nootropic, correct? It's in true brain. Yeah. Um, there's about seven or eight ingredients in true brain. Uh, Chris has changed. Chris Thompson, the CEO, has changed the formulas a lot recently because now they're all mass market on Amazon, et cetera. Um, the, I, I helped design all the initial formulas for the capsules and the drinks. They're pretty similar in the in the drinks now, but he also has food bars and ketones and things that I really nothing to do with. But yes, I, I think L-theanine is one of those nootropics that everyone can kind of try initially because it's pretty innocuous. It also synergizes really well with coffee or tea, with caffeine sources. So it often is a nice little lifestyle drug on top of your lifestyle drug. And then, you know, I also think that many humans do nootropics in a way that is a bit, or in, in supplements, it's kind of scattershot and doesn't work especially well. My, my, my biggest complaint is with things like melatonin. I think we, we are profound, not again, not abusing it in an addiction sense, but we're throwing ourselves off. You know, there's, there's no dependence yeah. in the melatonin, but there is tolerance because if you take too much melatonin, you cause a three or four day melatonin effect. You, you throw off the whole system for days. Uh, for anyone who's 
not gotten great results in melatonin, important to know the effective dose for humans is 300 micrograms, not milligrams, micrograms. Nothing, yeah. One, One third, less than a third of a milligram. And about half a milligram in, this is a bimodal dosing curve for melatonin. You get above about half a milligram, stops working. You have to go up even higher. But now you're not just getting the same melatonin effect. Now you're getting a secondary effect for two or three days. So you should be micro-dosing melatonin. And if you don't get much of a sleep effect, mix it with l and GABA, and they multiply each other profoundly. So mm. It's a great you know, tip. Sledge- sledgehammering your brain with melatonin will actually throw you off for days. Adding some L-theanine and some GABA, um, I think it's like a 6x effect when you add L-theanine and GABA to each other. Because by themselves, they aren't sleep-promoting. But when you combine them, the L-theanine gets through the blood-brain barrier, gets into the brain, starts GABA metabolism, which pries open GABA transporters, and then GABA is pulled into the brain for more GABA metabolism. So you got like a one-two punch. And if you also uh-huh. drop your cortisol with some melatonin, that one-two punch is really nice. Yeah, that sounds amazing. (laughs) Sounds much more effective. And also just focusing on lifestyle factors, like get away from the blue light so your body can naturally produce it, right? Yeah, I'm a a heretic in the biohacking world. I don't care about light. I think Tell us why. I think everyone's got got the wrong idea about light. Hmm. I have a really big problem actually with most things people are doing with light in the biohacking world. Um, There's a couple of basic science things people are ignoring. One, the frequency of light is not as important as the intensity. Two, humans are not meant to see one frequency of light, ever. So I started getting suspicious when I got a migraine every single time I put on a pair of blue blocking glasses. And then I started digging into literature, and it doesn't look like single frequency light is ever good for the brain. So I don't. I, I think that you know suppressing frequencies is a bit of an issue. Also, for terms of biohacking, we care about stuff that makes an impact. And there's about seven things on the list that are longer and more powerful levers on biohacking, the circadian rhythm, than light. In fact, light is pretty far down the list. And, and where light starts to show up is not afternoon or morning light. It's Sorry, not afternoon or evening light. It's morning light is the only light that seems to really matter. So my mm-hmm. biohacking rules are like, forget light. In fact, forget your bedtime. In fact, don't fight with your kids about screen time. It doesn't matter. Fast before bed. Number one rule, food is orders of magnitude more powerful pushing on the circadian rhythm than is light for an exogenous signal. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the evening, you mean three to four hours before bed, let your insulin drop all the way. Otherwise, if you go to bed, you go to sleep with insulin in your system. If you're 35 or 40 or above, the only growth hormone you're getting is in a one pulse as you enter deep sleep for the first time, 90, 100 minutes into your bedtime and into your sleep time. But if you have any insulin at all, suppression of growth hormone, and you skim the surface of sleep, no repair, no recovery. So the rule is, go to bed hungry, wake up refreshed and full of energy. But if you go to bed full, go to bed full, you wake up hungry and tired. It's very strange. Yeah. Um, So other food timing rules are important too. So first rule, fast before bed, three to four hours. Second rule, get up at the same time every day, seven days a week. Mm -hmm. Third rule, (laughs) exercise before you eat. And that wakeful time should be within one hour of dawn because the light that does matter is the morning light, the blue light that shows up in the morning. The suprachiasmatic nucleus, the part of the brain that sits on top of the optic chiasm, we have nerves that cross behind the eyes, on top called the X, the chi. On top of that is the suprachiasmatic nucleus, sits on top of the optic cross. And it samples the temperature of light as it hits the retina. And it's only triggered by the light I can see out my window here within one hour after dawn. When the sun is higher in the sky, 
the blue is reflected back out, um, UV is coming in, et cetera. You don't get a signal in the temperature of the, of the sky, the color doesn't trigger circadian reset. The superchasmic nucleus hmm. is only triggered by morning light around one hour after dawn or earlier. That's it. Oh, so I thought it was two hours. I have to reset that. I guess reset. I have to wake up earlier. <laughs> you don't need much and you don't necessarily need to be perfect. This is a signal. It's like insulin. You know, if most of the time you're, you're entrained, you can violate it here and there. But if you're always staying up late, always eating late, then you're sliding past the Earth's photo period. And now you have weird things like waking up in the middle of the night, being tired in the afternoon. You know, that's a sign that you're actually really not well regulated. So um, I think that the blue blocking guys, I mean, some of them are friends of mine, I, really nice guys. I think that they, um, it's, it's, it's one of those products people are using because of FUD. You know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, not because of any real science. I also have a problem with red light panels for the same damn reason. They're too intense. If you're using a red light panel in the afternoon, the intensity of the light will cause major circadian reset. Any light, not blue or red, the color isn't that important in the afternoon. It's the intensity. So a red light that's really intense at 6 p.m. could have some of the same morning reset effects. Mm. Color can matter. So it's the intensity and the position. The brain is very, very sensitive to things overhead. So later in the day, don't have your overhead lights on. Have desk lamps on. Much less of a, ooh, look at that sun up there. It must be morning kind of signal. So hmm. what about I using red light, light just on the body? Like if you're using it for inflammation or pain on an injury, is that okay as long as it's not being if you're seeing going it, into your eyeballs? Well, I mean, it, it's, I, I don't think you should be having intense light in your eyes in the afternoon or evening. That's all. Yeah. But if you can do spot treatment, sure, you know. But mm. a lot of people I know are doing their workouts at 6 p.m. in front of a big red light panel, or they're, you know, like got their Oof. their 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 panel inside their red light sauna inside, you know, like doing all their biohacking things at once. And I think that light is light in general should be minimized later in the day. But I don't, but it's about the intensity only. It's not of the color. You know, it's not much. And besides, humans can actually reset our circadian pretty easily. If you wake up in the middle of the night and spend you know, some time staring at your phone right in front of your face and full of brightness, your circadian rhythm gets pushed by one hour. That's it. That's it. Human brains can reset one hour a day. That's the slot. No problem. Mm. You know, it's not ideal, but like, don't make the first thing you worry about, your phone, the, the ambient light coming in from the neighbor next door. You know, that's not that important if you're staying up late eating and, you know, all the other stuff's out of, out of whack. If you are doing those first three things, then you should do, and you want to hack your sleep. Ambient light, blackout curtains, a cool bed, dropping the ambient temperature of the room will cause massive improvements in deep sleep. Um, also, track yeah, that's helped me. You use one of these things, an Aura or a, or a Whoop, <laughs> or I have like seven here, or a, or a SPO2 tracker, and look at what's happening in your sleep night to night. You know, I added kettlebells in a few a few days ago in the evening. I, I do a shtanga yoga in the morning and I'm in kettlebells in the evening. And the first night after I added kettlebells, my deep sleep went from what is usually an hour and a quarter up to over two hours. Oh, wow. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. I was like, oh, recover, recover. Please. You know, and for yeah. some people, you'll get that effect. Other people will work out and their deep sleep will get tanked, you know, or the window more sensitive to the, to the prolonged insulin response, cortisol response or something afterwards. So it's important to know how your these things you're doing are landing. But, I, you know, again, I'm all back on this topic of agency, you know, learning what's happening. Uh, Chris preaching to the choir here in the biohacker world. But yeah, it's so personal. 
it, and, and it has to be because people are so weird. <laughs> you know, you're not the same as your sisters. Um, exactly. Even if you the same language around them, they're not going to be the same subjectively in terms of how you think and what you feel and what's success for you and what's a stress for you. They're all, I mean, stress is very, very individual. We can handle almost anything if we have the illusion of control and almost nothing if we have the illusion of not control. So, you know, it, our, our perspective on stuff changes everything. And I think that it just feeds into the idea that we have the ability to look at stuff happening. So why not get all of the information and take control of the stuff above your neck, just like you do in this modern world of stuff below your neck, you know, with fitness and heart disease and all this stuff that we're trying to biohack for health and wellness. I mean, you guys know the most, most of what you can do for biohacking for long-term life is drop glycation and drop oxidation out of your tissues, which is inflammation and sugar. You know, most, Disease process of aging, diabetes, cancer, uh, dementias, and Parkinsonian features, those are all driven by glycation, by oxidation mm-hmm. of tissue through sugar. Um, not only driven through that, but accelerated, especially in things like Lewy body dementia and uh, Alzheimer's. It's dramatically accelerated by oxidation of tissues through sugar. So you can always just flatten out your carbohydrates, but that's you know kind of a gross thing. Once you've dialed in your you know, methylation status, you're feeling great and your abs are visible and, you know, your heart rate variability is what you want it to be. Well, if you still aren't producing good stamina, resiliency and performance, or you got a seizure or some ADHD or some old trauma, work that out. I mean, why not? It's, it's tractable. And here's a little trick or a little secret. The brain changes a lot faster than the body does a lot faster. Yeah. Hmm. Good to know. So, I mean, if someone comes in a lot of, out of shape and overweight and, you know, winded in a gym and they want abs, it might take six months, it might take a year. But someone comes in with profound ADHD or profound seizures or profound trauma, three to four months later, there's almost nothing there in terms of limit. You know, it's, oh. it's really rapid for many, many people. Uh, and so, you know, again, I'm just beating the drum up. You have, you have agency here. Shift happens. Get yours, you know? <laughs> yeah. So neurofeedback is really for everyone. It's just maybe how many sessions you need, depending on what's going on. Yeah, it only works if you have a brain. That's it. <laughs> I think um, I have one. Requirements. Yeah, I, I can tell. I can tell. Um, uh, it was discovered 53 years ago on cats. Cats are very bad instruction followers. I have two. That I've noticed. Um, I've also done plenty of work on kids that are nonverbal, people in coma, and plenty of teenagers who don't want to be in my office and sit on their phones the whole time. It's an involuntary exercise process. It moves your brain whether or not you want to move it. And that's kind of a lovely thing, working with a child or someone who's nonverbal or someone who has trauma. This is not like you have to go and do stuff with your mind to get out of your own way. This is like you're coming in to have your resources help out, you know? So, uh, the hardest part is just showing up. To some extent, yeah. So like, you know, we all have different, I'm kind of getting to this topic of stigma. We all have some, some concern, many of us do, some concern or shame or anxiety around our performance mentally. Oh, I'm weak or I'm distractible. Oh, I didn't sleep well. I'm not performing well. But we don't have the same necessarily degree of stigma around like our broken shoulder or our carpal tunnel syndrome or our heart disease. You know, we, we, we understand those things. We often see those things. But you can't necessarily see a seizure disorder or ADHD, well, you can kind of see that, or anxiety. I mean, you can't see, see the, the physiology being that different. So a lot of what the brain mapping gives you is like, oh, wait, it's my brain. Oh, it's just my brain. 
you know, so now I can change my relationship with this thing that I'm, that I care about or I'm suffering with, you know, and yeah. I've seen people who just get a brain map and don't do any training, but now they understand that their ADHD is a superpower will change their life without any neurofeedback and become successful. Others will just dial in all the resources they want and have a lovely foundation and then go, or sometimes like I'll, I'll occasionally I've worked with a person who's been traumatized physically and emotionally think of one person in particular. And I found this thing in the auditory cortex that was this blob of beta. And I was like, I think you have some of something interesting happening in the auditory system. What's going on there? And she's like, yeah, actually I've been physically abused by somebody smacked around a lot on the side of my head. That's where it was. And I have huge tinnitus, huge like uh, auditory, you know, mm-hmm. uh, ringing. And no one believes me and no one, no one thinks it's from anything. And I, and I, no one's ever been able to tell me where it is. And we just kind of found it cold on her maps. And she's sitting here crying, going, it's a real thing. <sighs> like, it's a real Such thing. A oh my God. Yeah. And it's just the fact that I was, I was like, okay, yeah, there's your brain. You know, I'm sorry you're experiencing this, my friend. But yeah, it's there. Let's see if we can't, you know, do something. I don't know if we can, but it's your brain. It's a real thing. It, it, it was the opposite relationship of years and years and years of I'm suffering, I'm suffering, I'm suffering. And like, really, was the impression she had from people in the outside world. Didn't, didn't, they couldn't hear the tinnitus. They couldn't feel the anxiety. They weren't in the traumatic relationships and she never felt seen. Uh, uh, the whole time she dealt with providers. One look at her brain. There's the evidence. Responses, some physical yeah. damage and like, oh my God, this is me. You see me. And I wasn't the, you know, I wasn't the role of therapist for her, but just the perspective on her own brain let her then decide to do things uh, and take more control and feel less shame and less, you know, less her fault. Yeah. Yeah. It really empowers people because I think a lot of people do hear it's all in your head. Well, in this case, it really is in your head. It is, but, head, but. Well, everything is. <laughs> but right? the brain yeah. does everything, so it's, it's, it's yeah. always where it eventually is. Yeah, so it's good confirmation to have. Do you work with patients with chronic pain, like sort of I disassociating I or reprogramming? Uh, all kinds. I have some clients that you know, eighty years ago had had like complete spinal fusion on both sides. I've had clients that have been in multiple, like, you know, jumped out of planes without parachutes and things and had every bone broken. I have several clients that have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a deep collagen genetic issue where they're often in deep pain in every deep tissue. And then there's people that have the weird, if you will, pain syndromes, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia. I work with a lot of those and a lot of non-specific problems because people often find their way to working with us when they've exhausted the traditional things. So I've developed a whole suite of ways of going after circuits in the brain to deal with trauma and with chronic pain that I've never seen anywhere just because of working with so much trauma and so much chronic pain over the years that I start to see a lot of the same phenomena deep in the brain. And about half the time we can work on chronic pain where it it moves almost instantly. It doesn't go away completely, but you're like, whoa, this experience is always there is starting to shift often, often right away. Um, and I would say maybe 70, 80% of the time we can make a real big impact on chronic pain, but that's a very strange thing. It's like hunt and peck and see what happens. ADHD is like almost everyone's the same anxiety. Almost everyone's the same in their brain features, the pain. I can't tell the difference in a brain map between hyper arousal from being a chronic drinker who's sober or being caught in a chronic PTSD crisis state, panic attack, or having chronic pain. They all look the same. It's, a, it's, a, it's an over-arousal, hyper-arousal of the brain that's in this like locked state in beta waves and it's over-connected. 
you know, I, well, there's such a spectrum because there could be real tissue damage or there could be no damage and there's just an emotional association. Is that correct? Because yeah, it's all in the t- brain. The pain is in the yeah, brain. Yeah, but tissue damage, I mean, the brain does, brain's always remodeling anyways. It's like your liver. So yeah, damage, but like, so what? It doesn't really matter unless it's really a lot of damage. We all have a little wear and tear, a sore shoulder <laughs> or some old scar tissue. It doesn't matter. Um, the brain can almost always change everything faster than any other tissue in the body. So yes, but think of it more like inflammation and wear and tear, not like a, a broken bone or something. And mm. it's, it's usually sub, sub, suboptimal performance. Like, oh, you weren't sleeping deeply at all every day for years. And now you're kind of fogging, inflamed and, you know, worn down. Maybe it's because you had a concussion 10 years ago. Maybe it's because you have some apnea. Maybe it's because you're super anxious. But the consequence is you're, you're, you're white knuckling your resource standing on the gas pedal of your car because the e-brake is fully engaged. You're driving around town grinding through, you know, uh, a drag. Um, I don't know why that showed up in any brain, but if I can describe the phenomenon and it rings true, we can go after it. So yeah. we got to be very, very uh, operational with this stuff instead of, well, here's what's wrong. Not that at all. Right. You just right. test and then what you see what comes up and start And see if it's relevant. Like the athlete says to the, the coach says to the athlete, hey, here's some performance data. Let's go through it and figure out which of these things uh, align with the goals you've described. And then the athlete does some stuff. The coach says, we're on track. Patient goes to the doctor and says, help. The doctor says, oh, here's what's wrong. Let me do some stuff. So the agency is flipped completely. Um, mm-hmm. We don't do it. You do it. We help you learn what to do. But we, you know, you choose what to do. And if you say, I want to do creativity work, I'm like, you got some anxiety. And if you do creativity work right now, you might be left kind of raw briefly. I want to try it anyways. Great. You know? So we, yeah. we're not, you know, in charge of the process for clients. They are. But we're sort of like the Sherpa or the guide or the you know personal trainer in the gym. We know how to set the machines up. We know how to move people through classic goals. We don't necessarily know what your journey is and can't in some ways. So, yeah, very cool. This is fascinating. I can't wait to do a mapping myself. Yeah. We'll have to get you mapped. Yeah. Are you, where are you? East Coast or West Coast? We are East, East Coast. Coast. I actually, East. I actually did a brain map. I think three years ago, but I didn't really know what it meant. I'll have to go back and. Well, if you guys feel like visiting St. Louis office, I'm happy to get you a map or you can come to California. I have an office in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, I'll come to California. That sounds great. I'll I'll come to California too. (laughs) I'll just jump in my car. Yeah. Come to California. Um, You know, we were going to open up in New York City before all this stuff happened with the pandemic. One thing that it's got us to do is to do all the mapping now fully remotely. So I send these amps around all over the world all week long. Um, next time we're sending them through your state, maybe we should have them stop at your house for a couple of days. And uh, yes, I would love one. It, it just, just send me an email, remind me where you are, and I'll I'll, I'll work into the rotation for a map. Cool, so. that's awesome. So yeah, everyone listening, you don't have to go to California or St. Louis. You no. can do this. We'll send it home. to you. Yeah, and actually, our if you purchase equipment and have like a real big, you know, year long program with four months of coaching, you're still paying less for Peak Brain than you would working with a therapist for a few months. We're, we're to know. kind of the cheapest game in town price wise, because we view ourselves closer like an Equinox gym and less like a doctor's office. Mm-hmm. So it's still expensive, but we're usually about a third to a quarter of a therapist pricing because our goal is not to do it for you. It's to sort of be an educational resource and a trainer and, and shepherd you through it as opposed to treat. So there's not necessarily an end point, you know, someone comes in for seizures to a therapist. It's like, okay, let's, do it and drop those, you know, or trauma. Let's get, get you past that piece of it. But I'm just like, what are the goals? 
They can be symptoms. They can be resources. They can be ongoing. They can be redefined. And clients will generally engage the process actually a bit longer and, and more deeply, I think, than they might if they were just having it done to them for a couple of months in an office, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so we yeah. like to provide you know, a lot of value and teach you all this stuff when you do it. That's really incredible. Awesome. Great. Well, Dr. Hill, before we let you go, we always like to ask our final question. What would be one uh, big takeaway for people for today? Maybe something they can start doing yeah. at home. So I, I would say that uh, one of the things again about biohacking is you're doing lots of things every day that are amenable to change and might, might want to change them. And I really do think that most of us are very bad at managing our sleep. Many of us have you know, sleep trackers and things. I'll say one thing about sleep trackers. Don't believe the REM number. They're not valid. No sleep tracker has REM. Everyone's concerned about REM. If you don't get REM for three no. or four nights, you go psychotic, literally. You cannot suppress REM. If your REM is suppressed, big things are wrong, and you know it because your life is not fun. Deep sleep gets suppressed and shorted, just like total sleep. So if you have a sleep tracker, watch the total sleep number and the deep sleep as the only interesting criteria of your sleep. And the deep sleep, the dreamless sleep, is the number one thing to focus on for quality for sleep hacking. And the number one thing for that is don't eat before bed to get plenty of deep sleep. Why do you think the REM sleep is inaccurate? Just the technology is not there? It can't be measured. Remember that these devices are are generally doing a mix of heart rate variability and accelerometers for picking up sleep stages. Um, REM is an active state in the brain. The body looks awake. REM is called paradoxical asleep because the brain is like uh, very, very active. The body's paralyzed, so you don't get up and walk around in your dreams. Um, so the, the, the accelerometer, the movement device, knows that you're asleep because the body is still. But it can't tell if you're in REM because the heartbeat looks the same as it does in light sleep, in light sleep stages. It looks like you're lightly asleep because the brain's pretty active. Deep sleep, brainwaves drop into delta. And the body starts rolling slowly back and, fa- back and forth very, very slowly. Actually, it will shift very, very slowly back and forth like you're a washing machine agitating yourself at night. And then deep sleep, the heart changes dramatically to so pick up that on this, but you can't pick up RAM. So it's kind of measuring uh, triglycerides or LDL in a blood test. They don't measure those. They estimate them after subtracting other stuff out. Oh, here's your LDL. No, it's not really a valid number. <laughs> and all the sleep guys, I mean, I know most of them and they all struggle getting RAM numbers to be reasonable. And they're not reasonable for some people. Many of my clients use the Whoop, the Aura, et cetera. And they say things like, oh gosh, the Whoop says I got six hours REM last night. I'm so excited. I'm like, that didn't happen. <laughs> or like, I yeah. didn't get any REM last week. For the, that's, what, that's what my Aura said. It's wrong. Because, well, are you psychotic yeah. today? You're not. Okay, no, it's wrong. Seriously, don't <laughs> worry about check. it. Am I some, days, <laughs> some days I feel that way. Just don't worry about it. But deep sleep is critical. It's amenable to being pushed on. It fluctuates very easily. And you can, you can use it as like a meter. Like, oh, I was recharged last night, two hours deep sleep, an hour and a half deep sleep. So watch that number if you're going to watch it. That's great. really great to know because I know early on my Aura REM score was really upsetting to me. It was, sometimes it was like 12 minutes and I was just like stressed all day. So now yeah, I'm just like a little uh, less associating. They've improved, the, they've improved the algorithm the past year. So the, the REM numbers changed about a year ago, but your REM didn't. Right. Yes, okay. I'm trying to not hold... Too much weight onto that. <laughs> not, no. Yeah. No. And if you put, you know, if I, if I put the BioStrap, the Whoop, and the Aura, um, and the Fitbit, 
and the Huawei on or my on my wrist. I have all, all five or six in here and wear them all. They all diverge in numbers every day. Yeah, my Whoop and Aura okay. are vastly different. Those are the closest for me, the Whoop and the Aura, but because they probably fit perfectly. The, 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 I can't take my ring off except in the afternoon. Yeah, tight. So, They're so. both tight, but my yeah. numbers are so different between HRV, deep sleep, respiratory. Like it's it all might be the position. You might want to get like a, a bicep strap for your Whoop or something. Because yeah. it might just be that you have a little extra bit of tissue or, or the, the vessels aren't exactly the right place or something. And so it's kind of getting a weak signal. Sure. Um, I found when I, when I, the whoop, um, sometimes if I shift it when working out, it would get weird results. I found the whoop that when I washed dishes, thought my heart rate went above 200. It didn't. Oh, wow. Like <laughs> it's just the heat is something weird to measurement, you know, the steam and the heat or something. And like, Okay, for That's five a minutes, crazy I cardio. Two hundred or something now. Yeah. So again, we have to be cautious. Don't believe the data if it doesn't. If it's not sane, but use the shapes. It's like a body fat scale. The percentage is not accurate, but if you lose four percent, it's about four percent. You know, yeah. So the trends are much more powerful. The relative change is what you should be caring about, not so much the REM number. If it doubles one night, that's probably interesting, but don't be concerned if it's always bizarre. You know, it's, it's just yeah. not not a valid number. Yeah. That's don't really s- helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. Don't stress about the data always. Awesome. Well, um, Dr. Hill, so for our listeners, we will share your website, social media. We have Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that. Uh, YouTube, you have some great videos on YouTube as well. So everyone check the show notes for that. And thank you again. This was such a blast. We appreciated wow. all your insight into the brain. Thank you for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time love this episode of the biohacker babes podcast head over to apple podcast to subscribe rate and leave a review we truly appreciate your support until then happy biohacking